Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 139 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is rock star Amanda Palmer who ran a record-breaking $1.2 million Kickstarter campaign to fund her 2012 album Theater is Evil. She was later embroiled in several high-profile internet controversies, which she recounts in her new memoir, The Art of Asking, which also describes how she met and married best-selling fantasy author Neil Gaiman. And now, here's our interview with Amanda Palmer. All right, so we're here with Amanda Palmer. Welcome to the show. Hello. Okay, and so your new book is called The Art of Asking. So what's that about? <laughs> uh, it's about everything from uh, crowdfunding and how to use the internet to how to deal with an abortion and a husband while you're going through your abortion. So it's like about everything. Uh, and so, yeah, so this is really a lot of big topics for your first book, right? What was it like writing an actual book? It was really intense. It wasn't... You know, the funny thing about writing it is is it wasn't creatively as hard as I thought, but it was like physically arduous to sit, you know, to actually like sit at a desk for that many hours, that many weeks, that many months and not really do anything else. I'm so used to touring and performing and moving around. Um, and so it was sort of like labor, you know, like that's sort of the feeling I got writing the book is all the ideas were there in my head and pretty baked, but I had to actually sit down to get them out on the page and work with my editors. And it was it was unlike any art project I've ever done before. It was really different. Well, yeah, and you mentioned in the book that you were writing 10 hours a day. I mean, why why did you have to work so many hours? Were you on a tight deadline? or I was on a super tight deadline. I, I would not have chosen to do it that way if... Um, if I'd had my druthers about me, but the, the publisher basically came to me and said, listen, we will, we'll make this the lead title of the fall, but you're going to have to get it into us in the next five months. Do you think you can do that? And I was like, I don't know if I can fucking do that. <laughs> I've never written a book before. I don't know how long this is going to take, but do you guys think I could do it? And they were like, yeah, we think you could do it. And I, I turned to the person in my life who knows the most about books and book writing, which is Neil. And I said, do you think I can do it? And he sort of cocked his head and was like, yeah, I think you can do it. Um, but then, you know, then it was like this test of discipline where I was like, holy shit, that means that for the next five months, any minute that I'm not working on this book is a minute that I'm not working on this book. So I felt guilty even like taking a walk down the street without <laughs> without working on the book. Um, and that was that was pretty rough. Yeah. And so where were you physically when you were writing the book? Because you mentioned in the acknowledgments that you were at Islet Waldman and Michael Chabon's house when you were editing it. And you also thanked the Harvard Lampoon. It sounds like you were <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, well, the book basically had two meta phases and then some sub phases in that. Um, the first thing I did to write the basics and, um, and dump all of the raw material out was I, I went to my favorite city in the world, which is Melbourne. Um, and, and Melbourne was perfect because, um, I really can't stand the cold weather. I have, you know, I'm not sure if I'm actually seasonal effective, uh, affected, but I really hate the cold in the dark and I'm way more productive in the, in the light. So I, I flew myself to Melbourne where I have, I have a bunch of friends, but 
I knew I wasn't going to ha- be shackled with responsibility. And I rented an apartment, you know, a little apartment with a kitchen and a bathroom. And I just, that's when I did my, basically my hardcore 10 hour a day schedule where I would wake up, get coffee, go to yoga, and then just sit my ass down in the chair and just write until I was exhausted. And I did that for about five weeks. And, you know, in that time, I, I took like two days off. I was really, um, I was, I was hardcore. And then I came back to the States because that was, that was in March and it was time for TED. So I took a, a week off to go to TED because that was, um, that had to happen. And then um, on the other side of that, I started getting together with my, my editor and good friend, Jamie, who wasn't, um, he, he wasn't the editor provided by the publisher. He was like my best friend, dominatrix idea editor who, who, who had helped me, um, write up my Ted talk. He was, he was really sort of like my wingman and he and I bounced around. Um, I, I probably spent the better part of the next three and a half months with him 50% of the time and alone the other half of the time just rewriting and reconstructing and cutting things and you know doing doing the more sort of nitty-gritty editing work and in order to do that we bounced around because um neil and i don't actually have a home we live in neil has a couple of houses i don't live in either of them um i have an apartment in boston where i'm still taking care of a sick friend of mine with cancer so we spent some time in boston sometime uh, near Jamie's house in San Diego. And then I kind of bounced around, you know, going to, going to other people's houses. You know, when I was up in San Francisco for some work, I, I stayed at the Shabons and just wrote, wrote on their patio. And basically anywhere I was, I was editing and writing. So I, you know, the book was done at, you know, in 50 different locations. The Harvard Lampoon one was funny because I was, it was, towards the very, very, very end of the deadline. It was like I had two weeks left to get this fucking book in. And and I was at the point where I was I was doing printed out proofs of the book, looking for rough spots and mistakes. It was like the, the 11th hour edit. And the Harvard Lampoon, um, I'm a member, and so is Neil. And they they called me this was, I think, in like, this was brutal. This was like July. The book was supposed to be out two months before. And they called me and they were like, Amanda, you're not going to believe this, but Katy Perry's going to be at a party at the Lampoon tomorrow. And I was like, good for you. Hmm. <laughs> and they were like, you've got to come. You've got to see Katy Perry and meet Katy Perry. And I was like, I, okay, that is something in my life that I should do. And so, but I was like, but I have to be editing my book because I'm really, I was at the point where I was like, I cannot take any time off. So I fucking threw my 300 pages in my backpack, drove over to the Harvard Lampoon, sat in their den, nursing a whiskey from upstairs and doing my line edits kind of as a joke, Hmm. but also also kind of. Because I had to get it done, and I didn't want to let these threads leave my brain because I had been working on them all day. And you know, I mostly did it just so I could say I I, I went to a party with Katy Perry and barely talked to her, and instead drank whiskey in the basement and edited my book. <laughs> <laughs> and now the story has been told and moving right along. Yeah, well, and that kind of sounds like something Neil would do too, right? Because there's a line in the book about how he doesn't like going to bars unless he has a book to read. Yeah, but that's mostly uh, that's mostly due to Neil's social anxiety. <laughs> none, 
not as much due to the fact that uh, he prefers reading in bars. He actually prefers reading curled up on a couch at home. Uh, but if you force him to go to a bar, he'll be more comfortable reading a book than he will be talking to the strangers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you mentioned that he sort of helped you out with this book and the acknowledgments you say that he suggested massive cuts. Could you just talk about what role he played in getting this manuscript finished? Yeah, Neil Neil helped me in in three big ways with the book. Um, some of them more, um, you know, direct and some of them indirect. The first way he really helped me was um, when I headed to Australia. And then we are technically married, but we're also a couple of freaks and our marriage doesn't resemble anything like a normal marriage. Although I'm not even really sure what a normal marriage is anymore because all my friends are getting divorced. But the you know, the, the basics of looking at your husband and saying, Hey, um, you know, now that I'm working on this book, you're not really going to have a wife for, <laughs> for a while. And Neil, Neil being the flexible understanding and compassionate dude that he is was like, that's totally fine. I will, I will miss you, but go off to Australia. I'll see you in a couple of months. Um, and I don't take that for granted, you know, and it's why I'm in a relationship with him and not some other dude who would be like, but that's bullshit. We're married. You're rah, 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 wife, wife, wife. Um, so that, that was actually the, the biggest and most concrete way he helped me. Um, although it was sort of indirect, but he gave me my freedom to go off and, you know, shut everybody out of my life and, and just focus on the book, which was, uh, which was totally necessary. I don't know how I would have done it without that. And then, you know, he's in the book a lot. There's there's these massive, um, you know, if you've read the book, there's there's all of this kind of, you know, philosophical stuff about asking and, you know, kind of how-to stuff about how to use the internet and how to crowdfund and how to build an audience. Um, but that's sort of the superficial stuff of the book, which is all very well and good and, and it was fun to write. But there's also two other huge threads tying the book together, which is my relationship with Anthony, my mentor, who was diagnosed with cancer right around the time I started crowdfunding. Um, and, and his influence on my life and my decisions around his cancer were just undeniably related to the philosophy of how everything else was, was working and happening. And then the other was my relationship with Neil and how our relationship has progressed and our ability and inability to ask for help and communicate with each other. And I, I kind of knew if I wanted to make this book a real book and not a bullshit book, I was going to have to thread all these things together to actually explain the deeper philosophies instead of just saying like, here's 10 tips about how to have a great Kickstarter, um, which wasn't a book I wanted to write, you know, because I feel like anyone could write that book. So this was ultimately a book about my relationships. It was a book about my relationship with Neil and a book about my relationship with Anthony and a book about my relationship with myself and my own struggles with asking for help. Um, cause I, ha I certainly have them as much as the next person. Although I, you know, I, I publicly, I tend to hide them pretty well. And, and Neil was really, you know, again, he's, um, he's an incredibly supportive artist in my life, you know, just aside from being a husband, he really, he, he gets me and he gets, he gets this process of sort of going in and digging deeper and revealing the ugly, possibly awkward, embarrassing things. 
And, you know, he, he knows me. He married me. He knows the person he married. He knew that if I was going to write about our marriage in this book, it wasn't necessarily going to be flattering. It wasn't necessarily going to be pretty. You know, this wasn't going to be kind of like a Jay-Z and Beyonce story with everything Photoshopped. It was going to be kind of ugly. But I also knew in order to do that, um, I kind of needed to do it with him. I needed him there as a you know, as a relationship stenographer and a, as, a, as, as an editor. And, and also because I didn't want to throw him under the bus. I wanted to give him a voice. If I was going to literally, you know, make him a character in this book and, and write words into his mouth, I wanted to give him his own voice. So I sent Neil passages as I was writing them, um, the ones that were about him, and I would send him five pages of a Neil and Amanda argument and say, this was, <laughs> this was my take on it. I'm sure you probably remember it differently, but go ahead and write your own dialogue because I'm not going to put this out there unless you feel like it's fair. And it was actually, I mean, my writing the book and giving him a hand in editing the parts about us and our relationship was was a kind of marriage therapy. It was a fucked up kind of marriage therapy, but it, but it actually worked because I could see things from his point of view, and he would look at things and say, "God, Amanda, I maybe I sound like that in your head, but I would never have said that." You know, and I'm over in the corner grumbling, going, "Well, you kind of did say that." <laughs> um, so so that was the second one, and then the third one was, you know, he's Neil Gaiman. He's a good writer and he you know in his own words neil has his own insecurities and you know he's convinced that he's a good writer but a great editor and that's actually what comes through in his work is that he really he edits severely after he writes something and i really trusted him and had a faith in him that i didn't have in anybody else including my editors when i finished up my first big chunk of a manuscript. And that fucker was long. It was like 150,000 words, which is almost twice the length of the book um, that I published. And, you know, it was like this four or five inch stack of papers. Um, and Neil had volunteered. We had talked about it. And I was on the insane deadline. And I handed him that pile of papers. And I said, I trust you. Cut this and hand it back to me, and don't tell me what you cut. <laughs> and he sat there for three days, cut everything out that he thought didn't belong in the book, worked with Jamie um, to, to put it actually to like ins, you know make all the changes in a Word document, and then they printed that out and handed it back to me. And I sat down and I read it, and I knew that if I couldn't locate what was missing in my brain, then it was probably okay that it got cut. And if I got to the end of a section or a chapter and was like, what the fuck? How could you leave out the... Rah, 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 rah? Then, then it would go back in. Or then I would sit down and I would have a battle with Neil about how that had to be in the book or a battle with Jamie about how that had to be in the book. But for the most part, I kept 90% of his cuts. And... You know, and he wasn't just cutting out a sentence here or a sentence there. He was cutting out whole chapters. And, you know, I basically wound up with two books. And, and the book that got cut was basically a book about the Internet. 
And the book that got kept was a book about emotions and how they related to the internet. And I think, you know, I think his choices were really wise. Um, I think the guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> well, I mean, there is still a fair amount of stuff about the internet in here. And I mean, one line that really struck me in the book is that you're talking to a musician friend of yours and you're trying to persuade him to do some crowdfunding. And he says to you, you can get away with it because you're Amanda Palmer, <laughs> queen of the internet. But that yeah. is not us. I mean, how do you feel about that being thought of as Amanda Palmer, queen of the internet? Well, I, you know, that's so funny because it relates to two different, there's parallels to that in, in two huge other places that I see. One is kind of like hipsterdom in, in general and coolness in general. And, you know, as I've grown into my life and looked at things from different perspectives, you really do realize that there's two levels of cool. And, you know, level number one is cool as it is defined, right? And like wearing the correct outfit. And then there's like uber cool and meta cool, which is the person who gives no fuck about what is cool and just carves their own path, does what they want. And they're so clearly themselves and unique that they surpass all definitions of cool, you know, and go into like Tom Waits territory. You know, and I think there's a big difference between the two. And I think you see the same thing happening in, you know, in, in, in art and in relationships where someone turns to you and says, well, you can do that, but I could never do that. Or I wish I could do what you can do. Or you can get up on stage, but I could never get up on stage. Or, you know, you're brave enough to talk about your feelings and blog about them, but I could never do that. And you know that it's not true. You know, you know that all the person has to do is just step up to the plate and that there's a lot of fear in the way. And I feel like, you know, that's a it's a fine line. And every time I see someone cross it and every time I cross it myself, I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, that was actually really easy. I was just getting in my own way because I was convinced I wasn't that person or I was convinced that only brave people did that or only cool people did that or only real writers are allowed to do that. And, you know, and you, you sort of have every time you get to that fork in the road, you have a choice. You either like you jump and you fake it and you pretend you're a real writer and then you look around and you're like, oh, my God. And then I did it. I wrote a book um, or, you know, or you or you sort of stay on the sidelines, you know, defining yourself by the things that you cannot do and the things that other people do. And, you know, I still have my struggles with this all the time. You know, I am still one of the most insecure artists I know. <laughs> I'm still totally fearful of the future and what I can and can't do. And, you know, obviously, like, horrifically concerned about what people think about me with my fragile artistic ego and all of that. You know, you keep struggling and you keep pushing and eventually, you know, you find yourself halfway up the mountain going, oh, my God, I didn't notice, but I actually climbed up here and now I've got a view. And... You know, the more artists I talk to, the more I realize this is a un, this is a relentless refrain in the life of every artist I know. And further, you know, most people, when you really, really get down to the truth, you know, they they have this feeling that they're sort of faking their way through life. But it, you know, it does come down to the attitude. 
you either realize you're fumbling in the dark and you're willing to be sort of honest about it, or you're, um, or you're just keeping up appearances that you actually know what you're doing and you're not admitting to yourself or anyone around you that you're, that you're clueless. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I'm sure artists have always had these sorts of uh, doubts and insecurities, but with the internet, you can have an unbelievable number of people attacking you all at once if things go wrong. And you talk about that in this book. Mm. I'm just sort of curious, kind of where emotionally have you come to in terms of dealing with that, the, the downsides of being on the internet? You know, there was, a, there was an article uh, recently in the New York Times that John Ronson wrote about um, it was, I, I think it was called like the one tweet that ruined Justine Sacco's life or something like that. And it was basically, it was a, it was a think piece, um, based on stuff that he had written in this book that he's got coming out about, you know, about the art of being hated on the internet and the art of having your life ruined because you tweeted the wrong thing. And, and, um, you know, the new culture of sort of pile on and outrage and, I found myself reading it and really um and really thinking deeply about you know how how being in shitstorm after shitstorm has changed me and if it has changed me um you know and I mean changed me you know profoundly and deeply and not just you know been a pain in the ass in my life for this week or that month um you know or you know or just had its working that it has you know, made me a more conservative tweeter or a more careful blogger. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's actually been really, God, I don't want to say nice, but one of, the, one of the things that has been, I guess, comforting about seeing so many people and so many good people, um, you know, because I, I sort of believe everyone is inherently good even if they, you know, even if they sometimes say obnoxious things or misstep or act unkindly. And I've watched so many people from Neil to, you know, Daniel Handler a couple months ago to pretty much every comedian friend I know and anyone I, ha I know who has got more than a few thousand followers on Twitter. I've watched everybody at this point. Um put their hand in a wasp's nest without, without knowing what was about to happen. And there's something now in the, in the, in the current zeitgeist of the internet, there's something now about, about knowing that I am not alone. And that at this point, pretty much all of my friends and coworkers and peers have been through an internet shitstorm or or more than one, and that it isn't you know and that it isn't personal it's just this thing that happens that's part of the job you know the way if you decide to go into stand up comedy it's part of the job that people are going to come and heckle you, and you're gonna have to learn how to deal with it as part of your craft and it's you know it's been a good couple of years since i was in a like nice big proper shitstorm which is surprising you know i used to go through hmm. them like regular like clockwork every 6 months it would be like what's the next shitstorm going to be and i would wait for it and brace position and my staff would wait for it and it would never come at the moment we were expecting 
you know, I would I would alert all of my staff and be like, hey, I'm about to post this blog. There might be a shitstorm. Everybody get in brace position. And then I would <laughs> and then I would post the blog and it would be like, oh no, nice blog, Amanda. You know, like no one would react. And then it would be, you know, it would be something else. It would be the tweet I sent out in the middle of the night, which would be like pasted on Jezebel as another one of the like, you know, one more terrible thing Amanda Palmer has said about feminism or something. It would never be what I expected. You know, of course, right? And so there's, but there's also something, there's something about an internet pile on when you get outraged at, you know, and it doesn't matter what corner of the internet it's coming from, um, you know, from the, like, the the right wing corner or, you know, the feminist corner or, you know, from the other musicians or wherever it's coming from. One of the worst things about when it happens is that you you feel so lonely. And even if you've got more thousands of people supporting you than you have thousands of people angry at you or yelling at you, it's a really isolating experience to sit there looking at your Twitter feed um, or or whatever and just seeing all of these people saying, you know, you're an asshole, you're a talentless cunt, nobody likes you, you're ugly, you're fat. It's it's really it's like third grade and you know, you kind of, you're sitting there on the playground going like, oh my God, everybody hates me. And it, it put, you know, it pushes all those really old insecure buttons. And even if you have a wonderful community of supporters going, hey, Amanda, like we actually know you and we know you're not that bad. And, you know, yes, your, you know, your, your tweet was ridiculous, but we understand how it was intended and don't worry about it. Here's a glass of wine. Those things really, um, you know, it's a lot like criticism and every, you know, every artist or writer I know, you know, agrees with this. It's like you can get 99 great reviews, but it's that one bad review that really kicks you in the balls and, you know, and, and sort of like tweaks your inner insecure artist going, oh, my God, the one critic that found me out. I really did write a terrible book. <laughs> um, and and so, I mean, to to circle back to the point. Now that it seems like everybody is angry at everybody on the internet, I feel way less alone than I used to. Because all all I have to do is 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 look pretty much anywhere on the internet, and I'm like, holy shit! Everyone is just constantly outraged at, at everybody else. It's like it's like looking at a battlefield, um, and I no longer feel like it's as personal. You know, I used to, when I, when I stepped in my first shitstorm five or six years ago, it really felt like, oh my God, it's the entire internet against me or it's the entire world against me. And now I realize it's kind of the whole world against itself. And I just happen to be standing two feet to the left or two feet to the right on any given day. You know, but it really has it has made me so aware of who I am and what I believe as corny as that sounds. Um, you know, I've, I have, I have found myself needing to define myself and explain myself and, um, articulate what it is that I've taken for granted all my life, which is everybody deserves compassion. Everybody deserves understanding. Oh, I thought everybody felt that way. Oh my God, clearly not. Oh my God, I'm in a minority. Um, thinking things as as absurd as you know the um, 
the, the perpetrator of the Boston bombing may have done a really terrible thing, but that absolutely doesn't mean that we as human beings can't empathize with him and his position. And I really, I was kind of shocked to find that I was in a minority thinking that, um, you know, that this guy as a perpetrator of a really horrible act still deserved empathy. And I found my crowd, you know, I certainly found myself discussing with a lot of people and especially in person, um, you know, this philosophy that actually all human beings deserve compassion doesn't mean that we shouldn't put them in jail, doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held, you know, uh, responsible and accountable for their actions. Um, but it really, it, it, it really meant that I had to define myself. And instead of just going like, well, everybody feels this way, everybody thinks this, don't they? I was, um, I really had to kind of carve out my place in the world and explain, oh my God, well, this is my philosophy. This is actually what I believe. I'm going to have to sit down and articulate it in a blog, in a book. Um, and, and actually having to sit down and hammer out what your ideals are and what your philosophy is, um, can be really helpful because when you define it for others, you define it for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's true that a lot of this hate is a function of people just not knowing each other, not understanding each other. And I think people who read your book will understand you a lot better. Do you have the experience of people reading your book and saying, oh, I, I'm sorry, I was so mean to you. I, I understand you better now. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've, I've had a few of those. And, you know, there's something really satisfying about seeing a book review or a, a blog um, written by a person, you know, who's just a out-and-out out fanatic Amanda Palmer fan saying, oh, my God, you know, if, if it couldn't get any better than her TED Talk, this book is just amazing, and she poured her soul out, and it's wonderful, 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 you know, 10 stars across the board. It's wonderful to read those reviews. It's even more satisfying to see the reviews where the reviewer starts out really hesitantly saying, okay, well, I kind of hated Amanda Palmer. I thought she was a narcissistic asshole. I read this book expecting to hate it, but I couldn't get to the end of it without really having to reckon with who she is as a, as a person. And the, you know, and the, and the beauty of it is I think so much of what happens on the internet and all of the hate being bandied around and all of these people yelling at each other, I think 99% of it comes down to the fact that we really are unable to see each other on the internet. We cannot see each other's humanity in a, in a tweet and an avatar. It's just not possible. And every time I have um, been face-to-face -face with someone who's, you know, treated me adversarially or, or um, you know, you know, or just down and out insulted me or, you know, whatever, you, you kind of know the deal. Anytime I've been just in a room with that person, it just melts away. There's something really different about, sitting with someone at a table or meeting someone in the, in the room in both sides, you know, it's really easy for me to hate a journalist who writes a slam piece on my book, but I can't hate a human being in a room. I f actually find it impossible to despise anybody because all I do is look at this flesh and blood human being and see them and all of their hopes and fears and flaws. And, and I can't help but love them, even if 
even if they've, they've, they've slagged me or reviewed me badly. And I think that's kind of true of everybody. And the thing that makes the internet so difficult is we don't get to have that experience of one another's humanity. We're so two-dimensional on the internet that it makes it really easy to lash out, really easy to act sanctimonious, really easy to see things in black and white. And, you know, even when we know that intellectually that things are way more subtle, way more complicated, way more multidimensional. And, you know, if I've learned anything from, you know, pretty much living half time on the internet for the past 15 years as a, as a full-time communicator and connector and social media user, I, you know, I think the challenge is to remember that behind every single piece of binary code is a flesh and blood human being and that you have to take that attitude toward it. Otherwise you go down the, the evil sinkhole. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I do want to tell you while I have you that I, I really enjoyed this book and, you know, I read it about two months ago and this podcast has sort of been going along for a while, not really making any money. And uh -huh. uh, I read your book and it sort of inspired me to start up a Patreon campaign, which has actually great. done quite well so far. So Cool. I, I do want to thank you while I have you here for, uh, you know, sort of prodding me to. to <laughs> well, stuff. you you are welcome. And um, if the people listening to this podcast are your Patreon supporters, good on them for having the, um, you know, having the thought to support it. it it's a two way street. That's awesome. And so, like I, I mentioned, this is a podcast for fantasy and science fiction fans. And I know you're you're married to Neil Gaiman. I was just curious, how big of a fantasy and science fiction fan are you? And have you been getting more into the into the books or the community since you guys got married? Well, I think it's it would be it would be impossible to say that I haven't gotten more into it since marrying Neil, just because you don't get married to Neil Gaiman and <laughs> and not confront more sci-fi and fantasy in your life than you would have. But um, you know, one of the things that I've found fascinating about sci-fi and fantasy especially since getting together with Neil is um is is confronting my own definition of what it was. I was one of those people, you know, especially one of those teenagers um and you know super judgmental college early 20s people who was like I'm you know what I love is very strictly defined and I love this music this music these kind of books and I hate and on the list of what I hated was like I don't listen to hip hop I don't listen to metal and I don't you know I don't like sci-fi and fantasy and I don't like all that dorky stuff without even realizing that a lot of my favorite books <laughs> and the stuff in my collection um you know, particularly the stuff I loved as a kid was, you know, was, um, you know, fantastical realism. And I, and I loved Ray Bradbury and I loved Kurt Vonnegut. And, you know, my favorite children's book was The Velveteen Rabbit, which is like, you know, one of the most beautiful pieces of, you know, fantastical fiction I think ever written. And, and it's actually, you know, I, what I've loved is having to confront my own outsider self as, you know, the kind of the snotty girl who is like, oh, I don't like sci-fi and fantasy. And then really meeting meeting someone like Neil um, and being invited into that world and going, oh, my God, well, clearly um, 
I was not only, you know, I was not only wrong, I was really wrong. This world encompasses so much more than I thought. And I was a fan of so many of these things without even really knowing that I was, you know, I, I had ill-defined myself. Um, and I've also, you know, I, in in trying to figure out Neil, which is like one of my favorite pastimes, hmm. <laughs> um, you know, figuring out why people are drawn to sci-fi and fantasy and, you know, not just to consuming it, but to, to making it. That has been, that's been a really interesting element of my life that I have stumbled upon and certainly didn't choose. And so since a lot of Neil's friends are writers um, and from sci-fi and fantasy world, you know, my main passion, like if Neil's main passion is books and that's his safe go-to place. My my real passion is is people and trying to figure out what drives them and what makes them tick and what makes them happy and why they choose to do this and not that, especially with artists trying to figure out, you know, what it is that drove them to want to create the kind of art that they create. And it's been a really really fascinating journey to meet all of these sci-fi writers and fantasy writers and connect the dots and put together the stories of their childhoods and the stories of their abusive pasts and the stories of where they came from and where they had to hide and how they had to confabulate certain things in their heads. And then what ultimately comes out on the page, which isn't to say that uh, all sci-fi and fantasy comes from, you know, terrible traumatic pasts, but a lot of it does. And it's been fascinating to me to, to sort of connect all of these things and to really see that underneath, you know, what I used to assume was the kind of superficial dorkiness and just escapism of sci-fi and fantasy is actually this incredibly deep, old as the hills, human uh, self-soothing technique for dealing with reality. And that has just been amazing. All right, so we're almost out of time. I did really want to ask you about, you mentioned that you took this class in college called Post-Apocalyptic Slash Eschatological Beliefs Throughout a Variety of World Religions and Fictional Genres. It just sounds like an amazing class. Could you just talk about that? Yeah, I think I think for humor purposes in the book, I lengthened the name of the <laughs> course. But yeah, it was a class in eschatology. And um, not unrelated to um, to your podcast and to what we were just talking about, um, a lot of the books that we read in this eschatology class, which is the study of um, the end of the world and end time beliefs, um, a lot of the stuff that we read was was sci-fi and fantasy. It was in that class that I was introduced to Octavia Butler. And that was one of those moments where I read a piece of um, you know, sci-fi fantasy and was, and was a little blown away because I didn't know that, um, that this kind of writing was out there. You know, I would have looked at the, in a previous incarnation, I would have looked at that book cover and gone, ah, oh, this sort of shit just isn't for me. But I loved Wild Seed and I wanted to read more Octavia Butler. And, you know, that was a, that was a really wonderful moment in college. One of, you know, one of the things that I've found about college is I, I was really lost during those few years and I was just kind of, you know, 
barely surviving and clawing my way through to just get the piece of paper and graduate. But there were great little moments and little gems of, of mind opening and, um, you know, little doors that opened that led me down, um, artistic paths and, and opened more doors later in my life to, you know, books and music and ideas that, that I'm still appreciating in retrospect. So I, I can never regret, um, the years I spent in college, even if they were the most <laughs> depressive of my life, um, there was still there's some really beautiful moments. I was also really curious. It says in your bio that you were a, a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. It's sort of, true. What sort of duties does that involve? Uh, well, I, luckily, no duties. <laughs> um, I've been a fellow at the Berkman Center for two years, and it's the Berkman Center is this really unique and weird, wonderful thing. Um, it is it is a physical building and a and a collection of weirdos at Harvard, um, and it was you know it was basically a foundation um, given a given a big chunk of money not long ago um, to basically study the internet and how it affects us and how it affects the world, and so a lot of the people. Um, you know who who work there and are the are the heavy Berkman weights are um, you know people dealing with uh, you know the the net neutrality wars you know lawyers who are super freedom fighters in terms of um, copyleft and and internet freedom and also just like hyper level MIT and Harvard nerds. Who, who study how social media affects us, how it affects our kids, how it affects, you know, our politics and our ideals. And these are sort of like the nerds in the back room while we're just all like giddily and happily using Facebook and the internet and, um, you know, sharing pictures of cats. Like <laughs> there's someone in a cave somewhere who's really fascinated at what we're doing <laughs> and why. And this is these people. And I was really, really flattered and honored to be in, invited to be a, a part of that particular geek cave. And most of, most of what the, the duties entail is there's a, there's a wonderful ongoing uh, email discussion group. And we email, you know, we all email everyday articles and studies and we help each other out. And, um, you know, it's a very sort of raucous, funny group of people, but also sometimes very serious. You know, sometimes there's, you know, giant decisions being made at federal levels. And I watch the, you know, I watch the emails going back and forth between the top people at Berkman. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't belong here. I am a fucking songwriter and these people are changing the world. I best just back up and watch in awe. So it's a, uh, it's pretty wonderful. Okay. And so then just finally, are there any other projects you want to mention? Do you think you'll ever write another book or have you had it with books or? <laughs> uh, you know, I've had it with books for the moment, but I also, uh, I, I, I think I've, you know, once you get bitten by the book bug, it's hard to go back. And it was really hard writing this book because in the back of my mind, there were all the other books that I would have rather been writing. <laughs> like, if I'm going to spend all this time writing a book, why am I writing about the internet instead of about sex? It's so much more interesting to write about sex. I need to write a book about sex. Um, and, you know, those are, those are really tempting thoughts while you're slaving on the book that is feeling very boring to you at the moment. Um, then, of course, as soon as you get the book out, it's, you know, I think I have a, some degree 
of just like postpartum exhaustion at the moment. And the idea of, you know, boinking somebody and having another kid is like as far away as the moon. But, um, you know, I think, you know, I think the one thing that a book could afford me that, that touring can is that, you know, you can do it in one place. And, um, I really did love my five weeks in Melbourne, just, you know, actually not having to get on a tour bus every morning and go to the next city, into the next city, into the next city. So uh, if anything else, you know, I think it's just going to get added to the arsenal of, of tools. And, you know, if, if in my old era, I was alternating writing songs and recording and performing and doing theater, now I'm going to be writing songs, recording, performing, doing theater and writing books. I'll just add it to the list of, you know, list of rotating choose your own adventures in my in my weird artistic life. All right. Well, that all sounds great. And unfortunately, we're all out of time. So we're going to have to wrap things up there. But we've been speaking with Amanda Palmer, and her new book is called The Art of Asking. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And while we're at it, one other thing I'd love to not forget is that I think I'm about to launch my own Patreon. So if you've already got Patreon people out there, um, they should keep an eye out for it because it, it'll, um, it'll be happening in the next few weeks. I will definitely encourage all 74 of our Patreon <laughs> to go check you out. Hey, listen, that might be all I need. <laughs> all right. So Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Amanda Palmer for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon, including Sam, Rob Walsh, Brandon Obermeyer, Ian Pratt, Justin Acton, Victor Cosentino, Jason Fisher, Matthew Ekwalsana, Joe Curtis, Kevin Leung, and Ismail Schonhorst. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. Our current total is $142.14 per episode. And remember that if we hit $250 per episode, That'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of 2015. And if we hit $400 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through June of 2016. So if you're looking forward to more Geeks Guide to the Galaxy, please head on over to patreon.com geeks and sign up. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot geeks. I'd also like to thank Monty Hurd for sending us a $20 contribution via PayPal. And remember, you can always send us one-time or monthly contributions via PayPal at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.